You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Live and in person, but outdoors, so you get all of the uh, outdoor noise of the world in Vancouver, because it's really just too hot to be inside. And it's pretty nice here in your yard. It's too hot to be inside. My AC is only in one room and too loud to record the podcast with... In, in the background. You didn't really want to drive to the office. I've been avoiding the office because I don't want to freak people out, bearing in mind that I had COVID. But I have been working 14-hour days, and I know you have too. So this is actually <laughs> this, this is, is the first time a break. The in podcast your, is a break. In your three days of 14-hour <clears throat> or four days of 14-hour days now, this is the first time that you've actually acknowledged that I too have been working 14-hour days. Well, I, Every day you've been like, I've been working 14-hour days. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I know. When I was doing a lot of manual labor, too, in those 14-hour days. But well, yes, I welcome. know. It's work is work. It's, uh, it wears you out. But my body is sore, I can tell you. Yeah. The worst of it's over, however. The worst of it is over. So apologies for the background noise. There's some lady across the street who's having some weird conversation on the phone where she keeps talking about uh, swearing on her mother's grave. So... If you can point out the timestamp in the podcast in which she swears on her mother's grave, we'll send you an air freshener. There you go. We still have some air fresheners. (laughs) They're still in their original containers. We had a lot of them a few years ago. We were giving out air fresheners. And now I wonder if they're still fresh in their bags. Oh, no. We we reordered a bunch. Yeah. Yeah, We made a second order and we gave almost all of them away already. Okay. Yeah. I love giving stuff away. I know. Me too. I want to get back to giving stuff away, but... We have so many things on our plate, working 14-hour days. Yep. And we also have so many things to talk about to do with cannabis. Funny how that is. Um, the uh, I could use some cannabis right about now. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that. When I was like, <laughs> being high would be great right now. When I was in isolation, I found, uh, I found some cannabis that had been packaged already and been sitting for three years and it's hard to believe that we've had legalized cannabis in this country now for several years 2017 yeah five years of legal cannabis and the cannabis manufacturing has not uh, turned out to be nearly as profitable it was more of a speculative thing Yep. But there's still lots of cannabis retailers yep and they seem to be doing just fine. And they all have lovely little stores and somebody in there working. So they're selling the stuff and they're Bud doing tenders. okay. But every time I go in a cannabis store, <clears throat> there's like no one else in there. Or just one other person. You know, yeah. that's it. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they seem to be doing all right. I wonder about the BC government cannabis stores because they planned on they're opening on a strike right now. bunch of them. Have they, have they started their strike? Yeah, they started the strike action earlier this week. And they're doing uh, targeted strike action and picketing outside of select BC government cannabis stores and the BC liquor distribution centers. So we're going to have a big alcohol problem here if, uh, if BC liquor distribution actually goes on strike. 
British Columbians, we're talking like summertime, beer drinking time. Yeah. People don't mind if you're your court staff and your, you know, other provincial government workers who work in offices and your adjudicators and your civil resolution tribunal members go on strike. But gosh darn it, if those liquor store workers go on strike, we have a crisis. I asked an adjudicator uh, at the superintendent of motor vehicles what the plan is. I did too. And uh, she said, I have ah! not, no clue, no, no ah! idea. You don't get a prize for pointing out the timestamp during which Wrigley barks at the woman um, <laughs> and or a something. Something. Who knows what it is. Um, outside podcast. So, yeah, they don't have a plan. And, and I really wonder, how are they going to deal with adjudication? I mean, they, you know, they could try managers. Um, you know, we're talking about adjudicators as part of the, uh, uh, you know, the government union that goes on strike. And, and these people, I mean, I, I have to tell you, they're, they're not well paid for their work. Nope. It's, it's hard work. It's certainly, you know, difficult, stressful, and probably leads to them uh, having anxiety and I would imagine all sorts of other things because, you know, they're making decisions that affect people's lives and they must wonder if they're right, especially when they're upholding the decision sometimes. Well, I had one tell me that they figure they can last about two weeks on strike before they're going to have a big problem feeding their family. Oh, yeah, survival for just being on strike and not getting paid. Two parents, two kids, both parents are government workers, and they're both on strike, you've got no income. So, yeah, it's well, interesting. I, the adjudicators are all based out of Victoria. Most of the people who are on strike, aside from you know those spread out around the province, are in Victoria. Yeah. So you probably have quite a few of them are couples yep. who need that income to survive, yeah, or, pay the mortgage. You know, one person works in one aspect of BC government and another in another. In any event, it's not like you're flush with cash. But this is actually how are they going to deal with the decisions? Like, how are they going to render decisions and conduct hearings? I mean, BC Supreme Court judges don't go on strike. Provincial court judges don't go on strike. Those are things that are always resolved somehow because they recognize the problem. Years of litigation. Now that we're using, (laughs) you know, we're tribunalizing everything. Yes. um, You know, we have this situation where um, the... um, the justice system can grind to a halt. A BCGEU strike now can effectively stop the resolution of most legal disputes in the province because you have provincial court staff. Yes. Uh, that, that slows down your provincial court. Civil resolution tribunal. Civil resolution tribunal, which deals with your strata, your ICBC, a ton of your small claims. And then you have the residential tenancy tribunal and you have driving. All of those things, none of it dealt with because it's all done by provincial government workers. And no matter what, like even if they're able to put things off a little bit, that work still has to get done at some point. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only way they could resolve that would be to hire more staff after the strike. Well, remember um, a few years ago. Bring back some people, I suppose. I mean, maybe there's some retired managers who could come back, but they, they can't deal with it with managers. Well, like managers, managers. And, and managers can't 
render the decisions on hearings that have already been conducted because that would violate natural justice. Oh, yeah. What about those ones where they're conducted already? And this creates an interesting problem. I remember a couple of years ago, back in 2017, we argued the case about delay in rendering decisions. And we said that it was unreasonable for the superintendent to take so long to render decisions. And there was this huge backlog. We got that table in that FOI that showed that there were about 200 cases that had been adjourned or delayed for over a year. No decision. No decision for over a year. That backlog is only going to grow because the police will still be issuing IRPs. People will still be filing them in dispute. And their hearings will have to be scheduled three, six, nine months into the future. And then when the adjudicators come back, once the strike is resolved, then they have to hold the hearings, then they have to render the decisions, and everything's going to be put on delay. But, and we didn't talk about this, the Supreme Court of Canada earlier this year released a huge decision on administrative delay. I did not know that. Yes, it's the Law Society of Saskatchewan and Abramitz. Oh, I didn't know that. Mr. Abramitz was a member of the Law Society um, who was subject to disciplinary proceedings that weren't even instituted for several years he after. Compl- he claimed it was an abusive process that it took so long. Yes. And the Supreme Court of Canada revisited the whole delay is an abusive process thing. And they said that, yes, if there is prejudice it can constitute an abusive process. And I think for people whose legal matters, and this wouldn't just apply to Road Safety BC, but we also have now, because of all of that litigation we did on the delay issue, condemnation from the courts on delays that are like six to nine months. We actually have a basis to demonstrate that there's prejudice because you've got the proverbial sort of Damocles. Mm. IRPs remained on a person's driver's abstract, which limits employment opportunities, opportunities to work in the gig economy for driving related things like Uber, DoorDash, that type of thing. Um, Obviously, it can have employment consequences. The prohibition starts immediately and then a hearing would get scheduled that then would be indefinitely adjourned without being held on the basis of the fact that, or I guess adjourned to a date certain numerous times, on the basis of the fact that they don't have adjudication staff which means that somebody's already served 21 days and they can't get anything back for it. They've got the vehicle impoundment that naturally affects other individuals. There's actual prejudice. And I think when you start to get into the new analysis for delay, as contemplated in Abramitz, this might rise to that level. I just think how backlogged they are right now for notice of prohibition disputes. Oh, my God, that's um, another problem. You know, we've heard of cases where people have written in, they've got a three-month driving prohibition and out of our office where we've written in, made submissions, waited for the decision, and then after the driving prohibition is over, they've written to say we didn't have time to make a decision during the three months, therefore we're giving you your money back. Sorry, here's your $100 review feedback. Sorry about all the money you spent on a lawyer. We're not paying that back. Oh, and by the way, the driving prohibition staying on your record. Yeah. We're not even adjudicating your case. Yeah. We refuse to adjudicate, which I think is a denial of procedural fairness in and of itself and the right to be heard. You know, a driving prohibition on your record has, has implications for you. 
particularly yep. if you get another ticket or something like that. Insurance. So if they issued you a four-month driving prohibition and it should have been reduced to a month and they never got around to making that decision, it can affect your insurance. It can affect any future driving prohibitions. And if you're ever in court standing in front of a judge because you did something that you shouldn't have done or you're charged with dangerous driving, the judge is looking at it and saying, oh, look, the superintendent gave him a four-month driving prohibition then. The validity of which he was not entitled. <clears throat> but the judge doesn't know that because no. it's just on the record. Yep. Yeah, it's not great. So when is their strike vote and when is the action starting? So there's some action starting now? They've already had the strike vote? Or? The, yeah, they're, they're already in See, the middle of job actions. The they've been... They've been um, Picket, picketing outside of the cannabis stores and picketing out of liquor distribution centers. Okay. So. Well, interesting. Um, you know, BC, for those listeners out of BC, uh, BC has long been the um, sort of the uh, place in Canada where unions are widely respected and where lots of people are uh, supportive of the unions. I don't know that that's still the case if it's that union culture is still the same union culture that it used to be. Certainly lots of BC government employees who uh, look at the union and say to themselves, this is why we earn a reasonable salary. But um, interestingly, while the BC Liberals were in office, they had um, relative peace in the uh, organized labor world. And when the NDP is in, the, the, the friend of the working man, woman, and people... Um, the, um, they usually have more labor strife. However, you can certainly understand it now with inflation. You know, I gotta say, I used to work at the liquor store. I think I've mentioned that on this podcast before. And I didn't like having union dues deducted from my check, except I got paid $18 an hour to put bottles of wine on a shelf. So, and this was in 2007. So minimum wage was what then? Twelve uh, bucks. It was, training wage was six dollars and minimum wage was eight. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. there you go. <laughs> so, really? God, that's low. Yeah. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah, I used to get paid nothing. Um, oh. well, it's double my starting salary. Yeah. Well, I mean, tw- the minimum wage. My first job was three dollars and thirty-five cents an hour. All right. Another thing I wanted to talk about, and you mentioned cannabis and that you could go for some cannabis right now. And I was trying to talk about before we got into how uh, strikes would impact road safety BC adjudication, which was an unanticipated topic. Um, I anticipated it. A very interesting case out of England or the UK, where a man received like a 27 pound fine for driving with an excessive cannabis split THC concentration. Yes, I saw that. It was reported in the Vancouver Sun. And I thought, it's not that interesting to me, but I guess they've got it now everywhere. Does he get a criminal record for that? Yeah, so this is the thing. It sounds like a particularly low sentence. But then you see that what he got on top of that, he gets a criminal record, he got a one-year driving ban, Oh my gosh. And he also got ordered to complete, it was like 19 hours of, of counseling and 12 sessions of smart decision-making training. 
I think he made some pretty smart decisions as a cannabis user. Yeah, he had like six, six and a half nanograms of cannabis in his system, worth a $41 Canadian equivalent fine. But he has to do like a shit ton of rehabilitation for a drug that's not addictive. Did he know that when he went into court? Did he plead guilty? Yeah, he or was pled he... guilty. But did he know about all the other collateral consequences? One would assume that he knew that this was something the judge would or could impose, that it would be a precondition to him entering the plea. Well, a lot of people don't know the collateral consequences of things. This wasn't a collateral consequence. This was part of his sentence. I know, but think about the, uh, like, dangerous driving, for example. Dangerous driving has no mandatory minimum in the criminal code, but in D.C. we've got the collateral consequence of the automatic one-year driving prohibition that a judge doesn't even impose. So yeah. I, I just thought, are these things that are automatic, or are they things that were imposed by the court? They were things that were imposed by the court. <clears throat> Which is wacky. It's wacky. Like, if you're saying this is so not serious that we're going to fine you, you know, less 40, than 50 42 bucks, bucks. But at the same time, we're going to make you do rehab. For, for cannabis. For cannabis. For cannabis where you can have, as we know, an underlying THC concentration. For a long period of time after you used it and no impairment whatsoever. Yeah. And, like, he wasn't convicted of being impaired. He was convicted of having an elevated blood THC concentration while behind the wheel. What's the deal with cannabis in the UK? Has it been legalized? Um, I don't know. Because that's pretty puritanical. Yeah. We were talking about cannabis the other day. And, of course, the, uh, the law is very different now around the world. You know, Canada, we've got this very extreme liberal version of it. Uh, where we're selling in stores. Um, of course, there's been uh, basically Jamaica and the Netherlands where you, you had some liberal acceptance of it. There's significant areas of the U.S. now, but not all of the U.S. You know, there's places where it's still completely prohibited in the U.S. And then you've got sort of the extreme end of Russia where, you know, this uh, athlete was just jailed for something like eight years for having... Uh, having THC in some sort of uh, tablets or something after flying there by mistake. Um, it's really a, a sort of bizarre situation for cannabis around the world. People still persecuted for using it. It shocks me, especially when you stop and look at the relative lack of problems that it caused in D.C. Next to nothing. In Canada, rather. I think have a really backwards approach to drugs and I do think that it is connected to our understanding of drugs and driving and and the reason I say this is as you recall five years ago when cannabis was legalized in Canada everybody got worried about the boogeyman the big bad drug impaired driver that was definitely already out there sure we were interviewed like a hundred times yeah. by every media outlet that that was the fear and that was the thing that was Our held mind. out all the time that there's going to be cannabis impaired drivers all over the road causing tons and tons of accidents. And uh, I mean, I, admittedly, I was uh, happy to be interviewed in all those things, and uh, I didn't I didn't overly play it down. But I mean, I I think we NBC knew that. Um, this had been going on for a long time and that uh, most cannabis impaired drivers are actually safe 
their impairment causes them to drive more carefully. Yeah. Sometimes overly carefully, but it's very rare that you see somebody who you can say is impaired in their ability to operate a motor vehicle. But even look at cannabis. Even look at like BC's laws related to drug impaired driving, like our administrative laws. After legalization, we brought in the drug ADPs, which in my opinion, have been a massive failure and an abusive process in and of themselves. I, I argued one today where a urine sample was tested beyond a detention period authorized by the courts. So a person could not be charged, but they relied on the results of the urine test to serve the ADP. Well, the, it's the horrible thing about the tribunals in this province is that, uh, is that um, something that can be an egregious charter violation is still going to be admissible evidence and considered by the tribunal. And that's the, you know, we've talked about it for years, a decade, the danger of tribunalization, putting things in tribunals so you can allow the police to violate charter rights. But then, you know, it starts to narrow the thinking of politicians, right? Like, where are we on legalizing drugs. The best we've done in BC is write a letter to the Health Canada and say, can we get an exemption so that we can have personal possession of some hard drugs and no criminal charges? And Health Canada's like, after a year, sure. Meanwhile, PPSC changed their personal possession charge policy anyway. So all Health Canada's decision did was essentially mandate statutorily what was being done through policy. Well, this week marked 10,000 overdose deaths in BC since we started keeping track of it. and Something like 90% of them were people with fentanyl and most of the people were between the ages of 30 and 50. And in typical British Columbia's overreach fashion, David Eby comes out saying serious overdose cases. I am, if I'm leader of the NDP and premier, I will bring in legislation that will force people into treatment. How effective have we seen that? If we look at the IRP scheme, impaired driving, mandatory ignition interlock, the first, you know, 18 months of the IRP scheme, how effective was that? Well, uh, there's been this big discussion about um, the number of people who are on the street with significant mental um, functioning problems uh, and the fact that over the last, the previous 30 years, basically since the charter came out, we have looked at deinstitutionalization where people who, you know, we don't just lock them into a jail anymore just because they don't think the same way as we do or maybe can't think as clearly as everybody else and struggle to survive. And now people are looking at the the crime in Vancouver and the number of people living on the streets who clearly have some significant problems. And they're trying to come up with some way to deal with them, which is basically separating them from society, partially because they freak us out and we're scared of them. And partially because... You know, most of us are sick of having our cars broken into. But then there's the issue of the people who have the addiction. And I've dealt with them. I've had families in my office, um, you know, where their child is, has, uh, has started using opioids 
and they want to try and save the kid. And we're talking like somebody in their 20s. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wish I could just scoop them up and save them. I wish I could just take them somewhere safe and save them. Uh, but you can't. I mean, you can't, you can't go grab somebody and, and against their will and do something. So it would require some sort of government legislative change. Yeah. And they'd have to come up with some way that's charter compliant. And so David Eby is basically just telling you what people want to hear right now, which is they want to see in reinstitutionalization of uh, of people who are um, different, and I I worries me. I don't know how to do it. I don't want to say no. Um, I just don't like depriving people of their liberty. Well, I don't agree with it. I want the government to instead of using driving law inspiration to create institutionalization because we don't understand. I would like them to use driving law to create free drugs for everyone. Well, we've talked about this. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, the way that it happened with cannabis in this country was the uh, um, yep. approaching um, city councillors and uh, persuading them that that um, all they had to do was make some sort of licensed uh, capacity to sell it. And you're basically decriminalizing it, um, doing it that way. And that led to greater access to medical cannabis, which led to people realizing that this isn't the end of the world if people can get cannabis, um, which led to, you know, the policy change that permitted it. But of course, the conservatives opposed it all the way. And, you know, the liberals are always worried about losing support. And when they talk about legalizing um, and providing a safe supply of drugs, you know, there's a significant portion of this people in this country who Look at that and say it's the worst thing ever. And to me, uh, 10,000 deaths in BC is the worst thing ever. Yep. So, I mean, dying is the worst thing ever for any person. When you die, that's it. No, dying's not the worst thing ever for any person. Lots of people choose to die. Well, and it's done. The point is, it's over. <laughs> but you know, yes, I get your point. It's the end of the world at that point for the that The point person. you're making, I agree with. Um, let's talk about something less depressing. Sure. Let's talk about the ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. Okay, let's talk about the ridiculous driver of the week. You are not so excited about this ridiculous driver. Well, I, I, I you go ahead and tell me. Let's hear about it. It's a man who led the police on a chase in an excavator. Did a lot of damage, too. Yeah. Did do a lot of damage with an excavator. Yeah, yeah. Took out, like, power lines. And... See, I've been on this planet for 54 years, and I never remember a news story of anybody doing something like that. And then in the last, you know, we saw there's a chase. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube um, where the police are chasing somebody who had a tank They'd stolen a tank going down the highway, uh, the you know driving <laughs> over barricades and everything. And how do the police deal with somebody in a stolen tank? You know, do you just are you driving through walls and doing all sorts of damage? Well, it's the same thing with a bulldozer and an excavator. And um, you know, it's uh, I don't know. But I just don't understand they don't go that police. fast. Like an excavator goes what twenty kilometers an hour? No, no, no. We're talking walking speed, like two, three yeah. miles an hour. 
Um, but still, what do you do? I mean, I, you can't run up and jump onto it because there's tracks on it. It's dangerous. Are you going to shoot the guy? Are you going to murder somebody because they're, you know, done some property damage? Why not Tiananmen Square it and stand right in front? Oh, yeah. Good luck with the that one. turning radius. Good luck with things. that one. You never know. That guy's crazy. Isn't <laughs> Probably Sorry, angry and, and he's trying to get himself killed. And, this is like, oh yeah, he's crazy, right? Well, right. Not Stole just that. An hardly, hardly a political protest either. Worth uh, putting your life on the line for. You're a police <laughs> officer. You know, idea of a low you, speed chase, it's like the OJ Simpson chase, but in an excavator. If you're gonna put your life on the line for the sake of of opposing authoritarianism and and pushing for democracy, I can get it. But a police officer standing in front of an excavator <laughs> just to get run over by a nutball. No thanks. I want to see the headline the next day. <clears throat> officer killed in the line of duty <laughs> run over by excavator. Look, it's like in Austin Powers, you know. Uh, one thing we learned from this recent police shooting um, oh, is that the police are not, that the police are not um, the courageous heroes that we want running in there and dealing with them. Oh, you mean the school uh, shooting? The school shooting, yeah. Okay, so, the police shooting in Canada, the police were being the courageous heroes running in, stopping the bank robbers. Uh, we did have that. We've had some pretty courageous police officers. The police officer who uh, who uh, died in the Nova Scotia incident a few years ago, she was as courageous as could be. Um, so maybe it's the difference between Canadians and Americans. Americans got guns all over the place and the police officers are... It is actually the Wussies difference. and the Canadian police officers are uh, actually going to have accepted the fact that they're putting their lives on the line to protect the public. It is actually a training difference. I had a police officer tell me all about it. And they're trained differently here. They, 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 they shoot at them here or something to get them accustomed to it? They, I don't know. No, what's the, the difference? U- in the U.S. You have to tell us what the difference is. Yeah, you can't so just... in the U.S., the police are trained if there's a threat to not get killed because then you can't protect anybody if you're dead. Um, in Canada, the police are trained that even if you're the only officer there, if there is an active threat to the public, you do everything you can to neutralize that threat, even if it means you die in the process. Okay, all right. That's that is two different philosophies. Yeah, and I like—I mean, I don't like the idea of somebody dying, but like, I like the Canadian philosophy because that's what we expect the police to do. Well, it's relatively infrequent, and if you don't manage to take out that person who's the threat or deal with it, you at least keep them from shooting an innocent person. Well, there's that too. You may not be able to pass that information on, but like if you if you don't do anything, if you don't, you know, if you if you don't put yourself at that risk, then you know, you might save a bunch of people. But you know, if you don't, those bunch of people are gonna get may are more likely to be injured in any event. So that's an interesting philosophical thing. Well, it's it's the uh, not the philosophy podcast, so I guess we gotta wrap it up with the excavator. Yes. So, <laughs> under Canadian police training, you probably do Tiananmen Square, that excavator. I don't think so. I think you probably, I think you, you probably shoot, shoot to kill. You shoot him. Yeah. 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 
Um, so that's our podcast. If you have stolen an excavator and led the police on a chase, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Thank <laughs> you.